episode of The Goods, film podcast featuring Dan and Brian. Feels like a milestone. Yeah, we're we're happy to have you guys listening to us and uh, joining us as we share movies that we are revisiting, both, you know, beloved and maybe forgotten. And this one is a little bit of both for me. We will be discussing the 2008 film Step Brothers, the Will Ferrell comedy. The story for me on this movie is that when I was in college, I saw this trailer on YouTube and I thought it was just the funniest trailer that I'd ever seen for any movie ever. I wasn't crazy in general about Will Ferrell, but I liked him enough and I really liked John C. Riley. And that trailer just made me laugh so hard. I still think it holds up. I sent it to Brian to watch beforehand. It's kind of like almost his own little mini comedy movie of uh, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley as these adult children who are stepbrothers kind of meeting, feuding, and eventually becoming buddies. But I, I saw the movie in theaters and I really was disappointed. I thought that the trailer had basically the best bits and the best dynamics and that everything that had been added while okay was really just padding around the good stuff, which again had mostly been in the trailer. I hadn't seen it since then, but I have since repeatedly seen it as kind of a modern classic of comedy, a movie that people love quoting, love rewatching, and so I figured I would give it another try. So I sent it to Brian, and you had not seen it before, correct? That's right. So you've done, once again, a good job of selecting a movie that I had been meaning to watch at some point but never gotten around to. I have a mixed set of opinions about Will Ferrell movies, I guess. I love Elf. Others have been more hit or miss. But John C. Riley, I've enjoyed in pretty much anything I've ever seen him in, up to and including when he plays the goofy dad who gets killed with a bow and arrow and we need to talk about Kevin. Um, like, he brought a spark of light into that very, very dark movie. Um, but, you know, usually it tends to be a more comic presence. Love Wreck-It Ralph, love Walk Hard, um, so I was interested to watch this one. So I was excited. A few of the lines, which I actually realize are now exclusively from that trailer, had I have been quoting since 2008, and the, the two ones are, that I most frequently cite are, there's so much room for activities, and did we just become best friends? Yup, which I've seen memed a few times online as well. So yeah, as you mentioned, Will Ferrell was kind of the centerpiece of this film, uh, the big selling point. As I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast knows, Ferrell had this ridiculously productive and popular run starring in comedies that all kind of had the same tone and structure uh, from the mid to late 2000s, particularly the span from 2003 to 2008, which was just five years. He starred or co-starred in old school Elf, as Brian mentioned, Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Blades of Glory, Semi-Pro, and Step Brothers, all of which are pretty iconic for just about anyone who was, I don't know, in high school or college in that span, frequently quoted, frequently aired in dorm rooms. Yeah, I've seen a few of those. I enjoyed Blades of Glory 
just goofy fun. I imagine they're all fairly goofy. For sure, yeah. They they all have that same goofy tone. But he he even did some other stuff in that time span. Like the there was a movie called Stranger Than Fiction, which was sort of like this fantasy dramedy that Farrell starred in in that span that got pretty good acclaim. He was in a widely panned reboot of Bewitched in romantic comedy form. Um, so he was very productive during that decade. So the, the main muse for Farrell at this time was Adam McKay, who's a writer, director, and producer that had worked with Farrell since they were on SNL. Farrell as an actor and McKay as a writer and producer type guy. So when Farrell decided to start making movies, McKay kind of joined him, and McKay wrote and directed Anchorman and Talladega Nights, and then he did Step Brothers. So Step Brothers was his third Will Ferrell picture. And then an interesting thing happened with McKay last five years or so, is that he kind of turned the corner from this broad comedy director to a sort of prestige comedy drama director. He uh, directed The Big Short and Vice, both of which got some love in the awards season. Vice was the one about Dick Cheney, and The Big Short, I think, was about the financial crisis. And he has a couple others in the pipeline that look to be of a similar prestige and kind of drama comedy genre and mindset. Have you seen uh, The Big Short or Vice? I saw The Big Short. I think it was up on Netflix, and I did check that one out. I can't say that I learned... A whole lot. I, I struggled to follow some of it. I know that something that that was celebrated for was kind of dumbing down the financial information to be accessible to the everyman. And I think I still missed some things. Yeah, that one's been on my to watch list, uh, mostly because I hear Steve Carell is in it in a sort of bizarre appearance. And I, I love Steve Carell, but I haven't seen either of those. I have seen his uh, his comedies. If you like this movie, if you like Step Brothers, one way I learned a lot more about it and researching this podcast is the website The Ringer has a really good oral history that brings in most of the key players in the film and kind of get the story of, of how this, this film pieced together. And it's pretty fascinating and fun read. So apparently the conception of the film happened during Talladega Nights, which John C. Riley was a co-star in. It was obviously one of the Will Ferrell star vehicles as a, a NASCAR driver. And John C. Riley plays kind of a Bible-thumping Southerner who's Ferrell's best friend and I think maybe his crew chief. And apparently during the filming of that, they had fantastic chemistry, Ferrell and Riley, and they did a ton of improvisation and really just played off of each other a lot. And uh, McKay loved it and got stuck in his head this vision of... Farrell and, and Riley lying in bunk beds and arguing with each other as they try to fall asleep. And he thought that that could be a germ of an idea that could turn into a, a film. So the, the three of them, after what was a pretty arduous shoot with Talladega Nights, it was apparently like really hot and they had to go out on the, the raceway to film a lot of it. They, they just wanted to do something that was like low key and easy to make. So they um, got together and they started pitching jokes to each other. So the, the three of them, Farrell, Riley, and McKay, they, they went to uh, Farrell's house for a couple of weeks and just started like coming up with jokes and trying to turn it into a script. 
and they ended up building what became Step Brothers. But the initial product was this absolutely huge script that was on pace to be about three hours long. So obviously you can't do a comedy movie, especially one with this tone that is anywhere near that length. In fact, I would argue as we get down the line that it probably outstays its welcome in close to 100 minutes. But they they had to cut a whole bunch of it, but they were really jazzed about it. They thought everything that they included was really great. And because they thought like improvisation was still going to be a big piece of it, despite the, uh, the massive amount of jokes they had written for it, they decided to hire actors who were up for going with the flow and, and doing improv in various takes. And they kind of pieced together this cast, which I would say overall is, is pretty decent with a couple of highlights. The, the interesting one is Adam Scott plays the villain. He plays Will Ferrell's brother in this. And at this point... Adam Scott was primarily known as a drama actor, but he was really good buddies with Paul Rudd, Judd Apatow. He was kind of in that whole circle, even though he wasn't doing the same movies that they were doing. Apparently Rudd and, and Apatow were like, you got to get this guy, Adam Scott, you got to try him out as the, the villain for this movie. He, he'd be great. And he ended up getting the part. And I am very grateful for this because... I really love Adam Scott. He's been in some of my favorite comedy shows and various comedy movies I've really liked over the the past 12 years since. Yeah, I know he shows up in Party Down, which you've talked up in reviews before. Uh, I ended up watching that one at your recommendation. And then obviously he's got a prominent part in Parks and Rec. Yeah, Scott overall is one of my good things about this film. I'm not convinced he's actually like his part and the way that it's written is actually that good but he's perfect and the fact that he went on to star and as you said party down one of my favorite shows of all time i was just really grateful to kind of have him aboard here but one anecdote i read in this oral history is that apparently that spot in the cast was down to two finalists it was adam scott or john ham who plays don draper in mad men I think at this time it was a similar situation where Ham was really known as a drama actor, but would go on to occasionally appear in comedies. Unlike Adam Scott, he's still more of a dramatic actor, but can appear in comedies, whereas Adam Scott mostly does comedies these days. But it, I tried to imagine this movie with John Ham in the, the Derek character. I actually think it would have worked. I think it would have been really good. John Ham has a sort of intensity that would have played for the the douchey villain. Yeah, him just being an asshole the whole time would be pretty funny. One more thing on Adam Scott. I noticed from this oral history, there was a really good quote that one of the casting directors who interviewed Scott noted, he just kind of looks sort of like a white guy, which I guess is what they were looking for for this position. But he does (laughs) have a sort of generic white guy look to him. That's accurate. I actually think he uh, has sort of like a almost pointed and gaunt look which makes it easy to envision him as a douchey character uh it kind of works here but he plays a really nice guy on parks and rec and kind of a low-key dude and party down so i'm glad he didn't get typecast as that after after this movie he's also in krampus the 2015 christmas horror movie oh i haven't seen that one is that one good uh, yeah it's okay <laughs> he plays the dad of the family who's kind of the protagonist that could be a future episode perhaps Yep, I've been 
running through Christmas suggestions in my mind. So in mid-2008, after everything had been filmed, the, the movie was released in, in the summer, and it got mixed reviews and was a, a modest box office success. It wasn't like a monster smash, but it was a pretty big hit. And uh, since then, it's just kind of gone down as this movie that people quote, people talk about loving and just turning on when they want to turn their brain off. So I'm going to hop into the, the film itself, unless you have any additional thoughts. Let's go for it. So one thing that amused me is the movie opens with a, a title card. A, I don't know what you call it. It's got a quote that says, Families is where our nation finds hope, where wings take dream, which is apparently an actual quote from George W. Bush. I'm sure they had a lot of fun hearing that and thinking that it was perfectly appropriate for this movie and, and splashing it up at the beginning. I believe that's called an epigram. Okay. It puts a quote from something at the start of like a book. Pretty sure. That works, yeah. It's a, an epigram, yeah. So the movie opens. We meet Brennan, who is the character played by Will Ferrell, and Dale, who is the character played by John C. Riley. And they are two men in a state of arrested development, and they're each living with a single parent. And those parents, Robert, who is Dale's dad, and Nancy, who is Brennan's mom, they meet and hook up at a business conference, and they bond over this sort of bland vision of upper-middle-class, older adulthood. Then they realize that they both have the shared burden of caring for adult children, and it makes it, them even more into it. And so about two minutes into the movie, uh, they're getting married, which make, of course, Brennan and Dale stepbrothers, as the title would say. Neither is particularly excited about the new arrangement, Brennan refuses to call Robert dad. And he had this line that made me laugh. I'm not going to ever, even if there's a fire, call him dad. So I guess that's a pretty good line. And meanwhile, uh, Dale worries that his bachelor pad vibe will be killed and that Nancy, his new stepmom, might try to seduce him. And so they have their first family dinner where they, they spar a lot. They talk about fancy sauce, which is ketchup mixed with mayonnaise and just kind of setting the vibe between them as uh, definitely going to be feuding a lot, bickering a lot towards this this early segment. Um, and then we learn that they're going to have to share a room, which ultimately leads to one of the iconic moments of this film where they're both lying in bed and half whispering, half shouting threats and insults to each other in these, these beds that are like four feet apart in the same room. I liked that Brennan, Will Ferrell insults John C. Riley by calling him a curly-headed fuck. <laughs> which, you know, that's kind of the pot calling the kettle black. Will Ferrell himself <laughs> has got pretty curly hair. Lots of good profane wordsmithery going on in this, this movie. If that's your cup of tea, there's a lot to like here. At one point, Brennan is giving Dale a tour of the house, including his drum set, which he marks as strictly off-limits. Brennan is never to touch Dale's drum set. And one thing I found interesting from that oral history is that apparently this is straight from John C. Riley's life. Apparently his brother had an obsessive protectiveness of a drum set in the house. So that's how that ended up getting included in the movie. Uh, the tension continues to escalate as Robert and Nancy begin planning a retirement trip to sail around the world. And with tensions high in the house, the, the brothers start pranking each other. It kind of kicks off this giant prank war where they're like 
drawing stuff on each other's faces and clothes and messing with each other in different ways. And this culminates with a, a huge fight after Brennan uses the drum set and Dale comes and accosts him about it. And this results in, like, as part of the fight, Brennan, who is uh, Will Ferrell's character, <laughs> pulls out these prosthetic testicles and drags them across the drum. And we get, like, a nice zoom in on it, which was really just a great bit of prop work and costuming. It, it, I had forgotten that that was in there in that level of detail. It made me laugh. But again, it's... <laughs> The crass humor of this film. Are, are, are we completely sure that this is prop and costume work and not just uh, cinema verite? <laughs> I considered it. I actually looked that up just to make sure. And apparently uh, it was, in fact, prosthetic. And Will Ferrell says it's one of, he keeps like small props from many of his movies. And that's one of his most cherished ones is he kept his prosthetic testicles from Step Brothers. <laughs> you can imagine it like hanging on the wall as a conversation piece. I imagine they would be. One line I liked in there is when uh, Dale asked Brennan why he was sweaty. He says, I was watching Cops. But later, Dale admits, I know Cops doesn't come on until four. It's like just the fact that they're on the same wavelength is it's very amusing. This blow up leads to this huge, massive fight. And the parents basically say, all right, you guys got to grow up. You got to get jobs. And it also seems to maybe alleviate the tension between them a little bit. They like are kind of starting to see that they see things the same way. Um, it's also around this time that we get the first instance of Dale and Brennan both being sleepwalkers. And for whatever reason, it seems like they always sleepwalk at the exact same time. And they're always like moving stuff around. And the first time they did this, I thought it was pretty dumb. But it comes back around, which I'll get to in a minute in the scene that might have made me laugh the hardest uh, this time through. Yeah, I wasn't sure what to make of these sequences, but I got the feeling that both Will Ferrell and John C. Riley were probably really into this idea. <laughs> There's a lot like, of things. We just yeah. wanna, we just wanna like fling our arms around and throw food. Everything I've read about this movie from the story of how it was created to like the glowing way that they talk about it afterwards is that. The gist of this movie was what are the goofy things that Farrell, Riley, and the director McKay just thought was hilarious and kind of got obsessed with and wanted to include. And I, I think you're exactly right that the sleepwalking is probably under that umbrella. The next day in the movie, we meet for the first time Derek, who is Brennan's brother, and he's the one played by Adam Scott. And we also meet his picture-perfect but highly dysfunctional family. They come over for a family dinner at the house it all kind of builds where dale ends up punching derek in the face after some antagonization which causes derek's wife played by katherine hahn is named alice and clearly very much resents derek for being so uptight and type a to fall for dale and initiate an affair katherine hahn really went all out on uh, the scenes with her and and uh, john c Riley. Yeah, I thought one of the funniest bits is when she's making out with him and he's just kind of standing stock still. And John C. Riley has got this big nose that's just like <laughs> flopping around as she's salivating all over him. So bonding over their new, newly discovered shared hatred of Derek, Dale and Brennan fully reconcile and realize that in fact they have quite a bit in common, which is when they get the, did we just become best friends? Yup. 
exchange. And I have to say that the following segment is by far my favorite part of the film where they're buddies and they're like getting up to mischief together as these, these man children. And they're doing things like doing karate with each other and watching movies. And the best one is they turn their beds into bunk beds. And of course, <laughs> John C. Riley hops on top of it saying, I forgot to ask, did you like guacamole? Which is just like a completely pointless line, but it just has such the cadence of a way a kid would say it or like what a kid would think about. And of course, right as he lands on the bunk bed, it collapses right on top of Will Ferrell. I think that to me is like the signature moment of this film. I agree. We were cracking up watching it, but I feel like Will Ferrell's injury in reality would be much more serious. <laughs> yeah. That looked pretty bad when it collapsed. <laughs> So shortly afterwards, they have these job interviews, which their parents are making them go to. And now that they're buddies, they decide to go to these job interviews together, which by and large go completely terribly. I really love the detail of them wearing tuxedos to these interviews. It's just like a good gag. Of, like They're not understanding how the adult world works. I thought it was surprising that their dad has two tuxedos. But I guess one is like a tailcoat. Uh, the one I think John C. Riley is in has got the tails on it, so maybe. At this point in the movie, we do get a Seth Rogen cameo. I was wondering if we might. He is the interviewer who actually is vibing with them the most. The chillest guy. <laughs> I think he says, So I'm literally just looking for employees I can hang out with. And as long as you're not the weirdest guys on earth, I think this will work <laughs> out. And then it goes south after Dale unleashes a nasty fart. Because, of course, you got to have some fart humor in here. But, yeah, Seth Rogen was an A-lister, I think, at this point. So that was... And, of course, in, in this circle of, uh, of dudes. So I agree. Not too surprising to see him there. So after these job interviews go terribly, they plot to instead create their own entertainment company called Prestige Worldwide. And Brennan, Will Ferrell, says... This is why our parents met, so we could form this alliance. After they've conceived of this idea and they, they walk home, they go past a school that Dale seems to have some history with. He's, he's very hesitant to go by it. And when they get there, there's this mob of really cruel school kids who just hurl these terrible insults at Dale and Brennan and then end up mobbing them and punching them. And then it has one of the better moments of the movie, a jump cut to... Them kind of nursing their wounds with uh, Brennan's mom saying, maybe we go a different way. And, and Will Ferrell says, yeah, I think we decided we're going to take the long way next time, which I thought was a pretty funny cut. And which was one of the moments that they give away in the trailer. Right. Yeah. So around this time, Nancy and Robert decide they're going to sell their house to fund their retirement trip sailing the world and also to pay for therapy for for dale and brennan who obviously have these issues of arrested development they're kind of trying to work out and this of course very much upsets dale and brennan who decide that they're going to sabotage these efforts both the sale and the therapy we get some funny bits here where they're sabotaging the house sale uh, one where they make up will ferrell like a corpse just lying on the floor in the house yeah, and they said it was the abestos that killed him. 
I also uh, I liked the line when um, Will Ferrell is the neighbor like mowing the lawn in a Nazi uniform and he shouts out to the prospective people looking at the house, hey, do you want to borrow any fertilizer? I've got a whole bunch of it, which is like a joke where you have to think for a second past when you hear it. Obviously, the Oklahoma City bomber used a fertilizer bomb, so... Oh, I didn't even piece that together. I thought it was just a random aside. It's like a cleverer joke than many in this film. Then there's a birthday party for Derek, the Adam Scott villain character, where we again get the continuing affair between Dale and Alice, who's Derek's wife. And at this party, we uh, have Dale and Brennan decide, because a lot of Derek's investor buddies are there, they're going to use this as an attempt to get investors for their entertainment company, Prestige Worldwide. So they display their first music video as part of their investment pitch. It's a very profane rap called Boats and Hose, which reveals that as they were filming it, they inadvertently destroyed the boat, which was the one that Robert and Nancy were going to sail around the world on and retire to. This sends the entire family into a spiral because now Robert and Nancy can't retire. And on Christmas Eve, Dale and Brennan start doing the sleepwalking. This is what I mentioned before that was maybe my biggest laugh this time around, which is when they come, they start bringing Christmas presents and like throwing Christmas presents at their parents as they're sleepwalking. And then I think it's Will Ferrell brings in the Christmas tree and like chucks it at them. Is a good bit of uh, physical humor. Yeah, um, at this point, uh, Mary Steenburgen, I don't know if it's exactly this scene or a little earlier, but we've got Christmas stuff going on. So naturally, I think of Elf, where Mary Steenburgen also plays Will Ferrell's mother in that film. But she has a line in here where she says, it's Christmas Eve. And she says it in a very similar tone to the same way she says it in Elf. And my brother and I have both got elf burned into our memories and so we like high-fived at that part nice that's got to be an intentional reference she says that at the moment when robert the the dad announces he's going to the cheesecake factory for drinks which i thought was a funny and cynical detail so the next day you can clear you get some hints as this is all going down that that uh things are kind of going south for for nancy and robert as their stepbrother children are ruining all of their plans. And at the Christmas dinner the next day with Derek and Derek's family there, Nancy and Robert announce that they are getting a divorce, which causes Dale and Brennan to to melt down now that they're buddies and kind of bonding. But it causes them to start blaming each other for the divorce. And they get into this nasty fight where they like hit each other with a shovel and attempt to bury each other alive. Um, it's another one that's featured in the trailer, but it's one of the the most intense bits of physical humor going on here. Yeah, I did like I liked when John C. Riley runs in and hits Will Ferrell over the head with a symbol, and Will Ferrell crumples into the <laughs> fetal position, and we actually kind of think for a little while that maybe he did hurt him. Yeah, and he's like talking him to himself into it. People die every day. It's just something that happens. But then the tables turn, and yeah, they're both trying to bury each other alive. So this is kind of a turning point for the characters. Uh, Brennan and Dale each decide that they're going to 
try and be self-functioning adults. They both get jobs. They both get apartments. And Brennan, at his new job with Derek, manages to convince Derek to let Brennan run the Catalina Wine Mixer, which is this sort of fancy wine country event, apparently for selling helicopters. And Brennan books the catering company that Dale is now working for and invites Robert and Nancy and seems to be staging this attempt to uh, get the parents to reconnect and, and call off the divorce. But I have to say that I think they came up with the Catalina wine mixer just to hear the cast say that phrase, Catalina wine mixer, about a hundred times over the course of 15 minutes here. And to me, at least, it did not get funnier with repetition. I didn't really get it. I guess it's just kind of got a cadence to it. I, I find something funny about it, but you're right. They they do say it over and over again, perhaps past the point of returns. Apparently, it has become a real event subsequent to the film. I did see that. Yeah, it wasn't one before, but inspired by this, it has become an actual event. It sounds real. I mean, it makes sense that it's... Because Catalina is like this California island. It seems like a place that fancy people would meet and drink wine. I like to think them talking about the Catalina wine mixer is another one of these things that Will Ferrell and John C. Riley and Adam McKay just thought was absolutely hilarious and they had to include it. But it's at that event that they have the most specific joke, like catered to me individually, maybe of any movie I've ever seen. So the band that they book is an 80s only Billy Joel cover band. And as many of you know, Probably many of you know, if you've ever talked to me or read anything that I've written, I grew up an absolutely huge Billy Joel fan. I know all his music inside and out. I have all his albums, etc., etc. Probably my favorite artist ever, especially if you're including nostalgic value there. And there's some really good details here with the specific songs that they pick, which are in fact 80s only Billy Joel songs. They have a woman in the band dressed exactly the same way as Christy Brinkley, who was then Billy Joel's wife, is dressed as in the Uptown Girl music video. And I like the bit where there's a guy heckling him to play Piano Man, which they absolutely cannot play because it is a 70s Joel song, not an 80s Joel song. I do really like that idea of a cover band that's just devoted to a specific era of a specific performer. Totally unrelated, but it made me think of how Macaulay Culkin used to be in a Velvet Underground cover band, except they would rewrite the lyrics to be about pizza instead of about like drugs and hooking up and whatever the Velvet Underground was actually about, and they called the band the Pizza Underground. With the heckling, the, uh, the Billy Joel 80s cover band gets in a, a fight with the audience, which causes the band to be thrown out of the Catalina wine mixer, which is now ruined, I guess, because there's no Billy Joel music on stage. And uh, Robert, the dad character, has apparently come to grips with Brennan and Dale being just who they are, and he uses this moment to convince Brennan and Dale to go and perform their music, which we've kind of seen sporadically throughout the film. Dale as a drummer, Brennan as a singer, to go perform it on stage. And it bizarrely works. They're singing like this dramatic Italian song. I looked it up. It's called Conte Partiro. And it kind of unites everyone. And, and you also have uh, in the background John C. Riley muttering, 
boats and hoes, boats and hoes as like a beatbox counterpoint to it. Yeah, this is a song. I think it's Andrea Bocelli's signature kind of operatic single. And my dad is a fan of it from a long time back. And so as all this happens, Robert and Nancy reconcile. They call off the divorce. Brennan makes up with his brother, Derek, Adam Scott. And then we get a a cut six months in the future. Dale and Brennan have apparently started a karaoke company, I guess inspired by this performance that they had. Brennan has fully seduced his therapist, and Robert and Nancy have gone all in on embracing Dale and Brennan's childlike tendencies. They turned that broken boat from earlier into a big treehouse for them outside. I like the idea of this karaoke company. We don't see a lot of it, but apparently it's tremendously successful. And the angle that they describe is that it's karaoke, but with a higher bar to entry. They won't just let anybody do it. So I guess there must be some kind of audition process, some kind of velvet rope, but it's karaoke that not just anyone can do. Yeah, I was curious. I wanted to to learn more about that too. And apparently they've like franchised it within six months of starting it. Yeah, they already have like six locations. So that ends the movie, or so it seems. We get about... 60 seconds of credits before it jumps to an elaborate mid-credits sequence where we see Dale and Brennan getting revenge on the elementary schoolers who previously had mobbed them using these kung fu moves that incorporate like school equipment and stuff. It's a, it's a nice little uh, kicker on the film. So, that wraps up Step Brothers from 2008. Yeah. Any thoughts before we jump into the, the good things about oh, this movie? Just that the last few weeks I've found myself getting into the habit of whatever movie it is referring to it with the year at the end of the movie. <laughs> uh, I think being with the other podcast and them always saying Robert 2015. Now I find myself saying things like Step Brothers 2008. I noticed that you always called it Robert 2015, even though it's just called Robert. It's not like there's a lot of different movies called Robert to my knowledge. No, but it's. I think in that case, they were doing it because it <laughs> got followed by a bunch of sequels, like one a year. Yeah. But now I can only think of it as Robert 2015 and Return of the Living Dead 1985 and, and, and so on. I also title the podcast episodes that way, so that probably helps too. So, some good things about this movie. I will preface all of this by saying that this is a pure comedy. It's our first pure comedy that we've talked about here. And I had trouble thinking about what I actually wanted to talk about here. It's kind of hard to talk about comedies. It's just either funny to you or it's not funny to you. And that's about it. But I still think there's some things here for us to talk about. I feel similarly. I struggled to put down too many notes for this, but you did a good job laying out our recap and what have you. So I'm just kind of playing off of you at this point. So... I think one thing that that works, by and large, it, it carries the movie, premise of the movie. The chemistry between Farrell and Riley is really good. I mean, Farrell is basically always a man-child in Arrested Development in all of his comedies. And because Riley has that sort of kooky, childlike energy himself, always brings a little spark to it, as you were saying earlier, they, they just match up very, very well. And they seem to be on each other's wavelengths. Did you enjoy watching them play off each other? 
I did. I I like both actors quite a bit, and I think the best parts of this film were the ones where they didn't lean quite too much into the vulgarity, uh, because a lot of their humor can be wordless. Like, they both have a very good sense of physical presence and physical humor. Um, I mean, the bunk beds collapsing, that's probably the funniest bit in the whole movie to me. And, you know, it's wordless. Um, but it's things as simple as, and this comes up a lot in Elf, too, the more that we've watched it, uh, just that the faces that Will Ferrell makes. And, like, the movies are edited in such a way to, like, always give a few close-ups of just Will Ferrell reacting to things. And there's, like, a scene, one of the fights at the dinner table where Will starts, Will Ferrell starts making a face like he's going to cry. And he's like, it just keeps cutting back to him with this, like, crocodile tears grimace. And, oh, is he going to, is he going to cry? Is he going to <laughs> go all the way and cry? Yeah, I agree. There's lots of little details of them doing stuff like that. Well, also they also they have these weird, like, half-completed hugs, especially on Will Ferrell's part, that he keeps going in to, like, shake somebody's hand or hug them, but he only gets, like, two-thirds of the way there and then kind of awkwardly recoils. One that I noticed this time is, again, the bunk bed scene, but before he hops on the bunk bed, they're so excited. John C. Riley has this thing where he, he's... It's almost like a manic excitement energy where he does like a little moonwalk dance, jump around that uh, it made me laugh. Just those little asides and things that they do. It's enter- always entertaining to just watch them. And I agree with you that I think the bits that are less profane, where you kind of just get more of them being kids and adults bodies, were the funniest parts for me. That segment in particular where they're kind of buddies and they're just getting up to stuff. I really liked those segments the best. There, There is some fun in, in watching them shout these terrible profanities at each other, but my favorite energy is when they're, they're more kid-like. But if you are up for curse words thrown around, this movie's got plenty for you. And I'm not a perfect man. I did find some enjoyment in, in the crassness of it all. A couple of lines I wrote down. This house is a fucking prison on planet bullshit in the galaxy of This Sucks Camel Dicks. And I'm going to take a pillowcase and fill it full of bars of soap and beat the shit out of you. There's just lines like that left and right that are just madcap profanity. And you have to admire it to some extent. Have you seen Full Metal Jacket? No, I have not. That's a a drama, right? It's like a war drama. Yeah, it's about the Vietnam War. But a lot of it is the training of a group of Marines to go to war, like them going through boot camp. And the take a pillowcase and fill it full of bars of soap and beat the shit out of you is something that happens in the early scenes of Full Metal Jacket. Oh, I did not know that. But still a funny line without that context. But that's that's pretty good. I also, as mentioned, I've already been over it, but I, I just really like Adam Scott. I tend to like anything that he's in. So I was very glad to have him here hamming it up as a major douchebag. If this movie had like one large-scale effect on the comedy world, the emergence of Adam Scott certainly by itself makes this movie worth it. I enjoyed that too. Uh, just the roles that I've seen him in have not been super villainous. And this was his chance to kind of be the cackling 
snidely whiplash. He got to do it again in the sitcom The Good Place. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, right, where he plays the demon. That's that's true. I had forgotten. Yeah, he's he's similarly kind of douchey there, kind of villainous. There are, there are a lot of other good kind of cameos and appearances, too. I noticed Ken Jeong appeared. There were a couple other, like, faces. Rob Riggle plays this... Uh, he gets, like, 20 seconds of screen time, but he's just going all in on the over-the-top henchman of Adam Scott. And the last bullet point on my list is just one more shout-out for somehow getting the most Dan-specific possible joke of having a very specific Billy Joel cover band that will only play specific Billy Joel songs and then getting mad when asked to play other ones. I, I'm I'm just grateful that they managed to include that in there, personally. Uh, one other thing I wanted to voice appreciation for was the actors playing the parents. So I've seen Richard Jenkins, the dad actor, in a couple things. Um, specifically, he's in Cabin in the Woods. He plays one of the agents controlling the horror movie set from the like horror movie bureaucracy office alongside Josh on the West Wing. I haven't seen that one. I can imagine him being good. I think his role here is actually a little too dour and like angry. Yeah, he's a little too mean here, but I have appreciation for the actors for the actor elsewhere. Oh, also Burn After Reading. Have you watched that one? No. Okay, so that's a Coen Brothers movie that I watched pretty recently. It has a lot of similar flavor with Fargo. Okay. And Francis McDormand is also in it. Oh, awesome. But it's about people who get mixed up in a spy story. Like civilians getting mixed up in, in what they think is a spy story. Oh, interesting. That sounds very fun. Um, he plays the real government agent who has to like deal with their bumbling into the situation. That sounds like a pitch-perfect role for him, given his his vibe. Yeah, I think I may recommend that one as a future future film, because I did enjoy that one. Um, But then, of course, you've got Mary Steenburgen, who is good in just about everything I've seen her in. I mean, she's in Back to the Future 3. She's in this time travel movie called Time After Time that my dad likes. But I especially like her when she's playing Will Ferrell's mom as in Elf and here. I thought she was funny as the enabler. It's like as ridiculous as things get with Brennan and Dale, she's always willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe past a point which is healthy. And because she's pretty much a straight character, there's like a couple of times where she really loses her cool, and it made those moments funnier and more effective for me. She sounds like some F-bombs at them when they're fighting at one point, and it got a laugh out of me. Anything else on your list of things you wanted to call out as good things in this film? Certainly I enjoyed the physicality of the humor, uh, both large and small. They both have very expressive faces, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. And then, of course, we've got some gimmicks where they're smashing through walls and kicking watermelons apart and broad and minute physical comedy here i saw somewhere it was some reviewer or something that said this movie works because 
both actors basically look like eight-year-olds with big baby faces and big puffy bodies and stuff. They just look like blown-up eight-year-olds, which allows for this exact dynamic to work. And they certainly embrace it with gusto. I mean, nobody here is turning in a muted performance. Agreed. Nobody is holding back. So let's talk about some some not-so-good things, some things that we maybe weren't a big fan of in this film. Gladly. I just think it's too vulgar and too nasty overall. It doesn't need to be quite so mean and quite over the top with its profanity. There's, there's got to be some less is more with that. Give it some more impact. It, it was just, it's just like a very dirty film. And if you're going for just a raunchy good time, I get it. But that's why I would never go down as one of my all-time favorites. I felt the same. It holds you back from sharing it with everyone you might otherwise want to. Um, they really swung for the fences with just making it like off-puttingly profane. And I don't think it works well with the premise of the film. I don't think it serves the premise well. Like, maybe a, maybe a different kind of movie, that tone would fit better, but I, didn't, I wasn't feeling it here. Yeah, I already mentioned my favorite is when they're kind of more just goofy kids that with the moments where they get to be that were my favorite. So I agree. I also have to say, and this is kind of in the spirit of me thinking that the trailer holds together better than the movie overall. Cause the trailer really focuses on this, but I think anything that doesn't really focus on the energy of John C. Riley and Will Ferrell drags the movie down a little bit. Like the relationship stuff with the parents is kind of a slog. I mean, it moves the story, and I guess you kind of need a story. I guess you do. I mean, I don't know. Could this mo- could movie have been better if it was just Riley and Farrell at this house for cut off 20 minutes, let's say. Let's make it a 75-minute movie. And there's just them goofing around with each other with Adam Scott showing up as the douchey foil, the brother. I probably would have enjoyed that type of movie more than I ended up enjoying this, which felt compelled to include all of these like more serious notes like these plot threads that kind of cloud the fun and make us not really sure like exactly what we need to be feeling and thinking about these guys i feel like that's a question that may come up with a lot of comedies though that you know what you're what you're there for is the gags and the laughs but it has to exist within a narrative framework that's like the delivery system yeah i guess so I guess maybe I just don't vibe with comedies that operate under that structure, like a plot for the sake of needing to have a plot, and the gags are pretty removed from that. I think that's a fair observation, though. I also thought, although I really like Catherine Hahn, uh, and there's a couple of good moments where she really throws herself into it, the the sidebar of the affair with between John C. Riley and uh, Alice is kind of in the boat of things that probably... Didn't really add overall for me to the uh, enjoyment of the film. Although, maybe that's not true, because I do enjoy Catherine Hahn. And I want to point out, she actually meets up with Adam Scott again in Parks and Rec. She plays the campaign advisor for Paul Rudd's character when uh, Paul Rudd and Leslie Nope are running against each other for a city council spot. So, they have really good chemistry in that show. And... I had forgotten that they were a couple on this because the main thing I actually know her from is from Parks and Rec prior to this. 
Yeah, I laughed at I laughed at the first bit of the affair subplot. I, I liked the bit where she's kissing him and doing all the work, and he's just standing there, yeah, unsure what to do. <laughs> but it it could have been cut. It was fluff. Another thing that I would say decreased my enjoyment of the movie, although I can't quite blame the movie itself, is that some of the gags here have been redone in subsequent media that I've consumed that I think just do it better. So one is the boats and hose is basically the same gag as I'm on a boat by Lonely Island, which is just this rousing, brilliant piece of comedy where you're juxtaposing these super duper not streetwise white guys acting like they're kind of tough gangster types while sailing on an expensive boat and doing fancy boat things. I think I'm on a boat nails it much better than boats and hose. And I think I'm on a boat was also 2008 because I remember watching it in freshman year of college. I, I looked it up to be sure. I thought I saw 2009, but it was certainly right around the same time. And then the gag of these doofuses trying to start a multimedia corporation and failing spectacularly is repeated in Parks and Rec with Tom Haverford, Aziz Ansari's character, trying to start Entertainment 720, which again, I enjoyed more than, than this here, but I can't really hold it too much against Step Brothers that they got outdid in the future. The last thing that I had is, and I've already opined on this, would this movie have been better with John Hamm instead of Adam Scott? I do think it would have been probably a better movie, but uh, as already detailed frequently here, I do love Adam Scott, so I can't hold hold it too much against it. Especially if this is what gave him the boost into the comedy realm. Exactly, yeah. I noticed, though, that you've got a few other observations here that you've kind of skipped over. Um, not to pull back the curtain too far into our process, but we do take some notes ahead of time. One thing you've got here that I also wrote down is uh, the film kind of presents Brennan and Dale in such a way that it's hard for us to know how to feel about them. The issues with trying to tackle some more serious things. Right, like do they have mental health issues? Why do they really need to grow up? Is this something that we need to confront? It, it definitely makes it less clear. Should we be rooting for them to stay in the state or is the happy ending where they are grown up and you kind of suspect that it was going to go halfway there you know say yes and yes but it definitely gave me something to think about is like how much do we want them to actually go and get an apartment and realize they don't have toilet paper and stuff yeah uh, everyone except maybe the parents everyone in this movie is outlandish so it's hard to know who to sympathize and empathize with. It kind of gives us the positives of their childlike nature, but also obviously we can see how they're a burden to their family and where exactly it comes down on that duality is hard to parse. Um, I saw parallels between this film and another Apatow I guess Apatow was involved with this only as like an executive producer or something like he put his name on it somewhere, but it certainly has a flavor, I think we can agree, which is shared with other Apatow projects. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover between this kind of 
Will Ferrell dynasty that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast in terms of stars and tone that crosses over with Apatow and the Apatow universe. I tend to think of Apatow as a little bit less goofy overall when, mm-hmm. when he really has his fingerprints on it. But there is indeed a lot of crossover, particularly here where the protagonists are these men who haven't quite figured out how to be adults. That's like a recurring thing for Judd Apatow. Right. I specifically saw parallels with the 40-year-old virgin, which, you know, this movie, Step Brothers, is more of a buddy comedy, bro comedy, and 40-year-old virgin is admittedly a rom-com. But that movie definitely did more to make Steve Carell's character a lot more likable than these guys. And that may be as simple as casting Steve Carell. I mean, Carell is a Hall of Famer. He's great. But I I think you're on to something for sure that that 40-year-old virgin holds together much better as like an actual movie with a story and characters way more than Step Brothers. Like it's actually interested in being a real movie with a real story, which kind of goes back to what I was talking about with the bits that I cared about were just the goofy gags, like, and the, the goofy chemistry, not anything that was the story driving those gags. Yeah. Not to take us too far out of our featured film, but you know, 40 year old virgin similarly presents a character who has been missing milestones in his life for a long time and is, experiencing arrested development like you have said once or twice here uh and makes that character you know sympathetic at least tries to kind of explain how things got where they are and i think there's potential that they could have done that with our stepbrother characters here and just kind of given context for how this situation came to be and how we're supposed to feel about it that isn't necessarily there in this film. There's like one throwaway conversation between the parents, like right after they get married. Like, how did Dale get this way? Or how did Brennan get this way? But in both cases, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, you know, it's Will Ferrell, like sang at a talent show and was humiliated. Uh, and then, I mean, John C. Riley's is even more of a joke. It was that he wanted to join the family business, dropped out of school to join the family business. But what his dad does is he's a doctor. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, because that's true. It's basically just played for laughs. That is a pretty funny bit, though. That's a good joke. Yeah. But I mean, when the premise is like something that theoretically, you know, there are people who really deal with this. And it's probably not as outlandish. It's like, especially in this day and age, you know, 10, 10, 12 years on, there are adults who are still living at home. One thing I saw is that they knew someone, I was trying to forget who, who said, well, in Europe, it's a lot more common for older adults to live with their parents. And so they just kind of shrugged away that this was a plausible thing that could happen. But yeah, I I think you're onto something that it is possible to tell a story like this that actually cares about the characters and kind of uh, digging into what made them what they are and what their arcs are, etc. Integrating them into a realistic cinema world, even if it is a, a comic one. So I, I don't really have anything else to add here. I, I mean, uh, I'm happy to jump into, is it good? Did you have any other thoughts on the things you didn't like or anything else we might have missed? 
I think we've covered it. I am ready to deliver a verdict, I think. All right. So, is it good? Our trademark segment, we have an eight-point goodness scale from very not good up to tour day good, an eight out of eight. As of last week, you and I have both given out exactly one tour day good. And if you include our crossover with Buzzed On Movies, we have given out each exactly one very not good. But where on the scale does this fall for you, Brian? So this one left a little bit of a taste in my mouth. Uh, It's not a completely incompetent filmmaking effort, as was Robert 2015. So this does not get the very not good. And I will admit, quite a few things made me laugh. Uh, always good to see John C. Riley and Will Ferrell in whatever they happen to be doing. They certainly seem to enjoy making this film. I will give this a 3 out of 8, a not not good. I don't know that I will be revisiting it anytime soon. Um, I'm glad I finally got to watch it, but that's where I'm at. I often find myself when we're reviewing these kind of stuck between two. And for me this time it was not not good which is what you picked and good ish and i was reviewing my notes and i decided to land on good ish because if you're a comedy and you're a straight comedy and your job is to make you laugh this one does that this movie does that and uh the thing that really bumps it over is the billy joel the billy joel bit i'm not sure i would have landed on good ish if not for that so We're going on good-ish for me for this film. All right. So not one of our bigger hits out of the uh, movies we've watched across 10 episodes, but maybe not a total catastrophe. No, I definitely don't regret watching it. Yeah. Robert 2015, on the other hand. (laughs) We try to forget. (laughs) And yet I think it's been brought up every episode since. Yes. Maybe it's becoming our rock of ages. (laughs) Buzzed on movies reference for you there. So, Brian, what are your parting thoughts for this week? Is there anything you've been watching, listening to, thinking about, reading, doing beyond Step Brothers 2008 that you'd like to share with us? Well, I think I mentioned it last time. I'm gearing up to do the eighth Gauntly Christmas episode for my public access TV show. Been brainstorming for that, and in the next week I'll be shooting it. Beyond that, what have I been watching? I don't know. What have you been watching? That's a good question. Yeah, I've been, I haven't had that much time to watch stuff beyond for this podcast. It's been a busy week or two, but I will say that this movie revisiting it. And as I mentioned, kind of the, the thing that inspired me to, to bring up this movie as a candidate for our show was the trailer and how I really, really enjoyed the trailer when it first came out. And I, I think it still holds up. I was trying to think on what are my favorite movie trailers ever. And the three that I came up with are all from like within two years of each other. And it was the time I was watching the most movie trailers. I'm, I'm sure there have been good, great even movie trailers since then. I do wonder if the dawn of streaming has diminished the importance of the movie trailer overall. And perhaps the time that I was in college, which was kind of preceded the streaming era by just a year or two, uh, if that was... The golden age, the peak, the last great hurrah of the trailer era. But my top three movie trailers are this one, The Social Network, where they have 
the children's choir singing Creep by Radiohead in the background. And Where the Wild Things Are, the I think it was 2010, maybe 2009, drama, childlike fantasy. I don't know if you ever saw that one. I do remember the trailer for that one, yeah, with the monsters like running along on the beach or something. Yeah, and and the music in the background is Arcade Fire, Wake Up, which is a great indie rock song, and it just fits the tone perfectly. Those are the three that have stuck with me the most. Have you seen Where the Wild Things Are? Because if not, that's a good future episode for us. I have not seen the movie, no. That, that would be an interesting one to talk about at some point, but... I don't know how I would rank those three. My favorite is probably the social network one, but those are kind of my my ones at the top of the list. Do you have any trailers in particular that you remember really loving? Oh, man. You're springing that one on me. I know. Putting you on I the didn't, spot. Didn't think ahead of time. Oh, man. I'll come up with an example to talk <laughs> about next time, or I'll append it in a link when we post this on earnthis.net. I like the idea of us revisiting this question next week. So we give you and give the listeners some time to think about it. Listeners, if you have any trailers, send them our way and, and we'll, we'll give you a shout out. But Brian, you can come with us next week with uh, what would have been some of your favorite movie trailers ever. Yes, I'll brainstorm. And on that topic of things you should be waiting for and pumped up for next week. So... Thus far on the show, all of my picks have been movies that I've seen previously and wanted to share. Dan's done a good job of choosing films that neither of us have seen but have been meaning to see, or ones that, you know, maybe he has seen before but not for a while and wants to revisit. So, in that spirit, I kind of went down the IMDb Top 250 movies to write down all the ones I hadn't seen before. And the one that jumped out to me as one I've definitely been meaning to see is Network. I think it's from the 70s. I'm going to double check. Yes, 1976. And it's about working at a TV station. I believe there's an eccentric TV personality who's having like a mental breakdown, but his voice gets amplified because people get into the... You know, he kind of, like, becomes a fad following this crazy guy on the TV. I don't really know, though. I mostly know that it was referenced in UHF. I think the most famous sequence of this is he has a, a rant where he says he's, he's mad as hell and not going to take it anymore or something like that. Is that the thing that's referenced in UHF? That's right. In UHF, it becomes, these floors are dirty as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. From the janitor TV star. I read an article about this movie one time that said it's almost a shame that this movie is remembered for that line, which is kind of campy and over the top, because it's actually a good drama on its own, like separate from that. So I guess we'll get a chance to watch that and, and see. Yeah, I'm curious. I don't know that much about it other than it's highly regarded. And I think it's something of a commentary on the way that we consume media 20 years into television. Yeah, so I think it'll be timely. You know, I think it's about the news, you know, what might not have yet been the 24-hour news cycle, but the news cycle. Yeah, it was on its way there, and as you mentioned, very relevant given the political news that's been going on for the past, I don't know, 
four years now, but particularly the past few weeks with the election. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that should be a good discussion. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, as always, listeners, for joining us. And Brian, thank you, of course, for watching the movie and having a conversation with me and giving me a chance to revisit a film I had previously dismissed. For sure. I'm glad you queued this one up. Look forward to talking to you next week. And listeners, join us again. Goodbye. Goodbye.